This is CES Tech Talk. I'm James Kotecki, bringing you another special conversation, this time from day two of CES 2024 in Las Vegas. We convened a stellar media panel to share their ideas and insights that are bubbling up here at the show. Enjoy this discussion from the heart of the world's most powerful tech event. All right, thank you everyone. So my name is Laura Ambrosio. I'm the communications manager at the Consumer Technology Association, which produces CES where we are today. So excited to have a great panel of top tier tech policy reporters with us from Axios, Politico, and Bloomberg for a great discussion on all things tech policy from AI to privacy. So I'd like to welcome our panelists and have them briefly introduce themselves. Hi everyone, I'm Ryan Heath. I'm the global tech correspondent at Axios and I write the AI Plus newsletter for them. I'm Stephen Overly. I host Politico Tech, which is a daily podcast about all the ways that technology is disrupting our politics and policy. Hi everyone, I'm Oma Sadiq and I'm a tech policy reporter for Bloomberg Government and I'm based in Washington, DC. So before we dive in too deep, I wanna um, bring up that this is all of your first times attending CES in person. So I want to get your thoughts. What's the, been the most surprising thing so far? For me, it's the absolute breadth of people that are exhibiting here. I know um, that the association has put in a lot of effort to broaden the discussion as well. So we've been really able to do everything from looking at assistive technologies to green technologies to the gadgets that you know and love from CES and, and now the policy discussions as well. So I've been impressed by that. I think the most surprising thing to me is some of the sessions around challenges or issues that technology may present. You know, I think that there is a more nuanced conversation happening at CES than maybe I initially anticipated there would be. I think I agree, just the sheer amount of people, <laughs> uh, which is great because we're all gathered here to talk tech. Um, I think one of the cool things I've seen on the consumer tech side of things is the LED Samsung screens. So I got a chance to just go around and be a little bit of a participant in addition to the policy conversations and discussions. So, so just going around the boots has been, has been pretty cool. So on the consumer or policy side, what's still on your agenda? What are you looking forward to seeing? Um, I mean, I, I think the big theme this year is obviously AI, right? I mean, I saw, uh, I met yesterday a South Korean makeup company using it to match your foundation. Another company using it to customize the, the ergonomics of your desk chair. And so I, I think I'm looking forward to the rest of the, um, the show seeing all of the ways that AI is, is being applied and being sort of built into these products we use every day. I just came from the panel of discussions with the with a series of commissioners. Um, so, I mean, I think I'm looking forward to more policy-focused conversations and sort of getting a new industry perspective because I think being in Washington day in, day out, there tends to be more of a skeptical view of AI, um, whereas here I think there's a lot of excitement and um, passion around the products and the innovation that's coming out of it. And so I think this is offering a new perspective, more of the industry sort of perspective of sort of where AI could actually do a lot of good rather than sort of a lot of the doomsday you hear on Capitol Hill. And not just do good, but you know, there is a lot of technology that might makes life a little bit better. And the thing that I'm most excited by is the technology that can transform a life. And so uh, I've been looking or noticing a real trend in technology that helps people take charge of their lives. 
and that makes the most difference if you have a disability or some kind of impairment. Um, and you know, we've got headsets that are replacing guide dogs for a fraction of the cost that really anyone in the world might be able to have in a way they can't with a guide dog. Um, and th that excites me a little bit more than just something that you know, is convenient. So, Oma, you mentioned the uh, conversation with the commissioner uh, session this morning. One of the highlights of um, the policy program at CES is the Innovation Policy Summit, where we feature government and industry speakers, and we talk about all different issues from digital trade, um, uh, self-driving vehicles, AI. Um, what are some of the sessions that you guys have attended? What were the key takeaways? Well, from the commissioner's session just now, um, both the FCC commissioners emphasized the need for Congress to reauthorize their spectrum auction authority. Um, it's been almost a year since Congress let the authority lapse. And so I think re-upping that conversation and bringing it back to the forefront um, as Congress kicks off this year and has a lengthy list of priorities to get to, um, I think it was, a, it, it was an opportunity to bring that back to, to, to policymakers' focus. Yeah, I, I attended a session yesterday about uh, basically how AI is going to change the way we work and what that means for workers. And um, it was interesting to hear, you know, the, the acting labor secretary, Julie Hsu, and the AFL-CIO president, uh, Liz Schuler talk about how we're sort of in this moment where we have big decisions to make about what we, where we want to integrate AI and where we don't, you know, what regulations we want to have around AI to manage its risks, and what the, the long-term consequences of that will be for the U.S. workforce. And it was um, not, not surprising, but interesting to hear that topic come up in several different sessions I attended yesterday, including um, the, the keynote speech from Walmart CEO Doug McMillan, right, where, you know, yes, Walmart seems to be very enthusiastic about embracing AI, integrating it into its stores in many ways, but he was sort of very quick to address the, this real anxiety around whether AI will displace human workers and, and how Walmart is grappling with that. And so to me, I think that's a really interesting undercurrent, you know, as we, we see all of this enthusiasm about AI, there are also real questions about what, what it means um, in, in the long term for our daily lives. Yeah, the Walmart uh, keynote for me really crystallized the thought that I'd sort of had in my head for a while about we've been having a quite distorted AI debate, which I don't want to say it's been hijacked by one company, but it we talk about a general technology and we talk about one form of AI through these chatbots. And AI exists in lots of other forms. And if it's going to drive our economy and it's going to achieve a lot of enthusiasm, people have to come along with that journey. And I think that Walmart was kind of nailing that on the head yesterday. They were understanding that if AI is going to succeed, it needs to address specific frustrations and you need to have conversations along the way so that people see why they should be using it or, or, or be part of that process. And so I think that sort of incremental approach, it can be less sexy, but it's probably going to be more effective in the end. So I think they get points for that. So obviously AI is dominating the news. It's one of our biggest trends at CES this year, from robots to autonomous vehicles. What are some of those applications that have really stood out to you so far at the show? I haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, but I did read about it, um, about Volkswagen introducing ChatGPT into their line of electric vehicles. And so the ability to then speak aloud, and it's voice enabled, I believe, um, and ask questions on the, while you're driving. Um, 
and incorporating chatbots into into numerous different technologies, I think, is 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 fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I. I think anytime a new technology is introduced and is sort of really hot and buzzy, it's always kind of fun and fascinating to me to see the interesting ways that people wedge it into products where it may not even really belong. You know, sometimes people use technology or for the sake of technology. Um, and so um, I, I think that's, you know, with AI being so big this year, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes the small products where it's like an AI-enabled toothbrush or, you know, an AI-enabled desk chair where you think, you know, I, I don't... I don't know that this is solving a real problem that I have, but it's cool, I guess. And, you know, being cool, it, maybe that's enough. And sometimes low-tech is good. Um, you know, there is going to be a bunch of sodium batteries that come onto the market that are going to transform electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And that might not be the highest tech part of the process, but if you don't have it, um, you don't get the efficiencies needed to let all the high-tech stuff be really cool. So I think that's great. Um, and then I, I think I mentioned it already, but I was testing a headset yesterday um, for people with vision impairments or people who are totally blind. And that's basically repurposing um, the LiDAR computer vision technology that will be core to autonomous vehicles taking over the roads one day. And if you operate that at about 75% of its capacity, you can put it on someone's head and totally transform their lives. And I don't think that was the original vision for the tech, but it is a fantastic second generation purpose for the tech. So we're seeing all these different uh, great applications, solving problems, improving accessibility, mobility, healthcare. Um, but just like a lot of new and emerging technologies, there's also concerns and risks. So um, CTA released a policy framework that seeks to provide guidance that will balance those risks with also allowing innovation to thrive. So what do we think that AI regulation is going to end up looking like? <laughs> a long way away, that's what it's looking like. Um, look, we're having smarter conversations about AI at a faster pace than we did around social networks, for example, and earlier generations of technology. So that's a positive. And because this is such a transformative set of technologies, you have to have those conversations early and not make major fundamental errors at the beginning of this long journey. So that's great. But don't expect any comprehensive law coming out of Washington this year, is what I would say. But Stephen and Omar can build on that detail. You hit the nail on the head, Laura, with striking that balance is what regulators are really trying to seek to do right now in terms of grappling with AI's many risks, you know, widespread misinformation, um, bias, you mentioned, we mentioned jobs earlier. And so being able to mitigate some of those risks while at the same time promoting a lot of these benefits of the technology that we just mentioned. And I agree, I don't think that it, it, we should be anticipating something sweeping in the way of Chips and Science Act. Um, but I think incrementally, we'll, we'll be getting to see some legislative action. Um, and, I, and I anticipate that to happen at least, we'll see the beginning of that this year. Um, some of the one area in which lawmakers are trying to move quickly on is addressing the issue of deep fakes. Um, it is an election year, and so that's of concern to many, many lawmakers who are you know, running for office, running for re-election. Um, and so I think combating that misinformation 
through deepfake campaign ads is, is really top of mind. And so we could see potentially movement out there. And then also another key area is competition and maintaining um, the United States' competitiveness in this area, um, particularly against China. And so there are elements in which we could see some piecemeal approaches happening. And so far, the conversations on the Hill have been very bipartisan. It would be smart to take action while it remains bipartisan, because then it can always uh, steer on the track of, of, of turning partisan. So. You know, it's interesting because I remember covering tech, you know, 15 years ago and sort of the dawn of social media and what I like to think of as the sort of gee whiz years of tech coverage, right, where every social media platform, every app, it was sort of look at this cool new thing. And there really was not much consideration for risks and downsides. And now with AI, as it's getting off the ground, it's actually a much more balanced conversation in many ways. I know there are many in industry who probably think it skews a bit too negative, but I, I do think there's at least this recognition both from the industry and from regulators that, okay, this technology does have some pitfalls potentially. How do we stop them? Um, I am inclined to agree with Ryan that I don't think Washington is going to do anything major on this this year. Perhaps some niche, you know, legislation addressing very specific issues with AI. But the reality is, I think, in the near term, any real AI regulation is going to come from either overseas, you know, obviously the, the EU has its AI Act, um, or from the states. You know, I would not be surprised this year to see more states in the U.S. passing AI legislation, whether that's comprehensive or, or more tailored bills, I think remains to be seen. But that's likely where the, the first moves are going to happen. A couple of final thoughts. I'll be brief, I promise. Um, there is an advantage to the U.S. moving a bit slower than the EU or some other jurisdictions on, on regulation, which doesn't diminish the need for the regulation. But the EU didn't properly anticipate generative AI and its impacts. So it had to make a bunch of last-minute pivots um, to its law, and it's very hard to future-proof these things. So I think the US has a kind of second or third mover advantage because it's taking a bit of time, and hopefully the Biden executive order will fill some of that space so that you don't get too many of the downside uh, risks popping up in the meantime. And then one other thought, there is a real tension between those people that talk about the existential risks, you know, the kind of like, the robots will control us, humanity's doomed, versus the more mundane discrimination and bias and workplace sort of risks. And I, th I think we have to take that debate really seriously because a lot of the people that focus on the existential risks, that gives them time to play and cause problems on the more mundane areas. And they're the sort of people that only get hurt when all of humanity is exploding or dying, whereas there are a lot of vulnerable groups that will get hurt in the meantime if we don't fix some of those more mundane aspects of AI impacts. So you've all kind of touched on this, but with the technology, AI technology quickly evolving, and we're starting to see those movements on the policy front from the executive order, the Senate forums. Um, but what will happen if the, if the United States does not lead on AI technology? And Omar, you talked about the competition with other countries. What will be the consequence there? I mean, we're in a very different area from, as Ryan mentioned, the, the concerns around social media. Um, I think that's a prime example of what happens when the U.S. does not take a lead on regulation or policy, and now they're sort of grappling with the consequences of that, particularly in terms of consumer privacy and safety, and now a lot of that debate is around uh, children's uh, safety and online safety and privacy. And so it's as if the U.S. is now 
playing, still playing catch up to try and prevent some of these harms that have already happened. Um, and I think you, could, you can anticipate a similar sort of fate, but at scale, because AI impacts just about everything. Uh, if, if US policymakers were to just sit, sit back and not do anything and let the rest of the world sort of put the, put the measures in place. At the same time, I think the US has certain principles and values that it wants to put out there, um, particularly as it's trying to position itself against China. And so letting um, countries like China take the lead in terms of AI policymaking allows them to sort of set the scope and set the principles of what AI um, should, should be like around the world. I mean, I think in some ways the consequences of that really depend on who you're, who you're talking to and what vantage point you're looking at it from. Because, I mean, the reality is certainly when it comes to tech regulation, the U.S. has not been a leader on most things, right? I mean, the EU has led the way, for instance, on privacy regulations. The EU has led the way, along with some others, on regulations around um, online harms and speech. And so, you know, the sky has not necessarily fallen. Um, what's happened instead is a lot of those EU or foreign regulations wind up getting applied in the US because companies just want to set a global standard for themselves. And so, I mean, you could argue whether or not that's a good thing or not, but I, I think one consequence of this um, that probably doesn't get discussed enough is the disparity in the rights that American consumers will have compared to consumers in other countries. You know, already Americans have a different set of privacy rights than European citizens do. Um, they're going to have um, more, you know, different set of protections around online hate speech and disinformation than EU citizens have. Um, and so I, I think that's probably a consequence that does not get enough attention is what rights do Americans lack that maybe other, other consumers of technology have. And on, on the China front, like uh, a couple of thoughts. Like I think there are things to worry about in a competitive sense that we have already successfully started to worry about. And so the big one there is chip production. And that is a proxy just for anything where the US or the coalition of democracies might be unnecessarily dependent on China. You don't want that dependence. So funding a proper industrial base, having advanced chip manufacturing in democracies is really important and we're on the right track there. But then think about sort of the ways AI might develop in China. It's not really very appealing in an economic sense to a lot of people. What are you gonna do, buy a bunch of surveillance products from China? Um, that's their leading edge of, of AI in lots of respects. And, and that's not a great thing. So we don't need to worry that China is, well we do need to worry that they're mass producing surveillance products, but we don't need to worry in the sense that those companies and products will outcompete American offerings. We're much better off having an open ecosystem in America that produces things as a result of debate and with some regulatory constraints around it because they're things that most people around the world will actually be much more interested to buy than Chinese-made surveillance systems. So I want to go back to Stephen's point about how AI and data privacy are really intertwined. And much of the tech industry, including CTA, has advocated for a national privacy law to get away from that patchwork of state laws, provide more consistency and clarity uh, for businesses, but also consumers. What are you hearing in your reporting? Do you think we're going to see a national privacy law anytime soon? Um, what's, gonna, what's it going to take? 
Um, I, the, the fact that you could ask us that question pretty much any year of the last two decades or so, um, you know, it suggests to me that this might not be the year that that happens. Um, but what's interesting, I think, I, I was just having a conversation about this on my podcast. If you look at the state privacy laws that are passing, um, a lot of them are very similar. And so instead of really a patchwork of state laws, you're actually starting to get a little bit more of a de facto national standard that's emerging. I don't think they're identical, but there's a, a lot of similarities. And so I, I think one interesting trend to watch will be as more states adopt a similar data privacy law as they sort of set a de facto national standard. Um, I don't think that that will make um, national, you know, federal data privacy legislation irrelevant, um, but perhaps it sort of eases the passage a bit if the federal law mirrors what's happening in the states. I think that's the, the dynamic to watch, in my view, more so than any extreme movement on Capitol Hill. States tend to move faster than than Congress does. Um, we're already seeing that also with AI as states like California, Connecticut, Michigan start to introduce um, committees to review AI or already p passing legislation related to AI. I think on the privacy front, there is definitely a bipartisan appetite there, of course, to set a national data privacy standard. What that may look like is where there's disagreement. But I do believe that with the onset of AI, um, the attention that it has in terms of intertwining um, privacy within that, because there are a host of privacy concerns, there's a lot of concern now of how do we approach AI? Well, maybe we start with a national privacy standard as sort of like the baseline foundation of AI regulation. And I think that idea is getting a little bit of momentum. There is some criticisms of that out there as well, but I think more and more you're seeing that prop up um, in conversations on Capitol Hill. So I think, you know, whether or not they'll be able to do that, again, it's, it's, it's up in the air, but um, the fact that they're approaching AI through this lens and not leaving the privacy discussion behind and it's all coming together in one um, could, could prove fruitful. And we can't talk about privacy without also talking about cybersecurity. Um, with more devices becoming connected to the internet, that's great for our everyday lives, but that also opens up the doors for bad actors. So CTA has worked um, to create um, with the government um, the US cyber trust mark, and so that's helping consumers make more informed decisions about their products that they purchase. What other measures are you seeing, other public-private partnerships that can help uh, protect consumers? The, the biggest problem is the skills gap around cybersecurity, I think. Well, there's two things. Like, the, the problem of, of, often isn't the tech, it's us. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're the back door. That, that messes up a lot of things. So we have to take personal responsibility and be aware of how to take that responsibility. Um, but there's just a massive skills shortage. Like, government in particular struggles to keep up here, um, which is not great from a national security perspective. Um, so, you know, I'm all for the trust mark, but then we have to do underlying work as well because there is a pipeline that feeds our ability to have cybersecurity and that you don't, you don't fix that overnight. Yeah, I think one um, really interesting and, and probably pretty consequential trend is the rise in red teaming and sort of these collaborations between industry and government where they will 
do um, coordinated and deliberate attacks on AI models, on core infrastructure, on space stations, um, and essentially mimic the bad actors, right, and try to identify vulnerabilities. I mean, to some extent that has always existed, but I think now it's really been normalized, um, and I think you've seen the federal government embrace it quite a bit, which is is pretty significant. And for, for instance, when um, the, the White House announced an agreement late last year with AI companies, red teaming was built in there and sort of protocols for securing their AI models were in there. Um, I think that's really important and I think furthering that trend where um, the, the government and industry kind of work together to address vulnerabilities, especially in these you know, technologies that we all interact with, um, will be really important. Anything else? So, um, Oma, you mentioned attending the commissioners, the FCC commissioners' discussion this morning. With all of these devices becoming more connected to the internet, from smartphones to smart homes, what are you hearing about the FCC's priorities for the coming year, and what else can be done to help bridge the digital divide? Well, I think number one is more funding for the Affordable Connectivity Program. Um, we're seeing you know, Congress get letters every day about that, and lawmakers themselves calling for uh, more funding to be put towards that program. Um, so I think that's a huge priority of the FCCs this year. Um, also Spectrum, as I mentioned, um, because right now they are pretty much powerless to auction off new bits of these invisible radio airwaves that fuel all our wireless uh, communications. And so I think having Congress prioritize those two things is a bit tricky, uh, considering the, the amount of work that they have to do, and it is an election year, and so a lot of them won't be there for parts of the year. Um, but the FCC is still sort of moving forward with its own proposed um, rulemaking in a variety of other areas um, that they're pursuing this year as well. So they still have their hands full in the meantime. On, that, on the spectrum point, I think a key around the world to unlocking spectrum for all this proliferation of devices is negotiation with the military, who are notoriously unwilling to, to say that any of the spectrum that they were handed decades ago could possibly ever be used for any of these devices, even though their own reasons for needing that spectrum is potentially very occasional or emergency-based. So I think there are ways to make sure the military can have access to that spectrum when they need it, either for tests or for conflict-driven reasons um, without stopping all the rest of us having devices that work. Um, but that takes more than the FCC to solve, um, but it does also take a willing partner in, in, in the Pentagon and, and probably the White House as well. So I, I, I would keep an eye on the White House trying to make a bit more of that discussion happen. So before we wrap up, give me your quick projections for 2024. What do you expect to see either at Congress, the administration, or at the state level this year? I, um, I expect to see a lot of state level action on tech. You know, we, um, we saw an increase in the number of state tech bills that passed in 2023. I think that's likely to rise further in 2024, especially as more states grapple with AI. So if you're talking about U.S. tech policies, state capitals are really where the action will be. Uh, I think AI is going to continue to dominate the conversation on Capitol Hill. I think 2023 was sort of their introduction to it, and there was a lot of this exploratory phase, educational phase. I think this year will test whether any of that exploration and education will actually translate into 
any sort of concrete um, legislative action. And I'd keep an eye on the elections. I think that there are big risks, but that because we're all talking about it, probably those risks are going to be fairly well managed. Um, you will see a couple of explosions, but I think generally speaking, it will be under control. Well, I want to thank our great, uh, fantastic panel. We had a wide-ranging discussion today for, about different tech policy issues. Um, so let's give them a round of applause. Well, I hope those media insights from CES 2024 give you some ideas of your own. That's our show for now, but there's always more tech to talk about. So hit that YouTube subscribe button, leave a comment, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, wherever you're getting the show. Get more CES at CES.tech. That's CES.tech. I'm James Kotecki, talking tech on CES Tech Talk. <laughs>